I would like to speak to you this morning from Colossians chapter 1. If you will take your Bibles and turn there. Again, we have moved away from our typical verse-by-verse exposition. We've been going through 2 Corinthians. I'll probably stay away from that for a little while. We want to move into some uh, Christmas types of, of themes. But this morning, I want to talk to you about Thanksgiving. We've got a lot to be thankful for, right? I want to look just at verses 12 through 14 in Colossians 1. Paul has been praying for the spiritual growth of the Colossians and by extension for all of us, and he says this in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Last Thursday, Nancy and I went to Office Depot to get, to get some supplies. And while we were there, we noticed there was a, um, a black gentleman with a Trump hat on. And it had the, an eagle with all the, the flag on the, on the things and all. And my wife, being the troublemaker that she is, said to him, Sir, I, I like your hat. Well, my goodness, she launched his rocket, let me tell you. And he began to talk about how the Democrats have stolen the election, and he got into a lot of things, and I could tell, man, this guy, this guy really knows his stuff. And, and uh, he, he, he then said, by the way, I know what I'm talking about. And he pulled out a thing and flipped it open. He's a federal agent with, with something. And I thought, no wonder this guy knows what he's talking about. And so uh, he went on and on and on. And then finally, he, he leaned in and he said, but our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, then, and then he said, I wrote it down. He's going to take care of all of this someday. You can count on that. And then he launched into, this is what, this is what preachers need to be preaching. And he didn't know who I was. <laughs> and then Nancy says to him, well, he's a preacher. Oh, my. There goes stage two of the rocket. And, and I, mean, I mean, here we go. He launches into basically the catastrophic failure of evangelicalism and, and all of the stuff that's being preached. And, I mean, we're just sailing. I mean, we're weightless here after a few minutes, you know. Well, you could look out and see the moon in the rearview mirror. And he, he, was, he was just so excited. And and, and he talked about how that just recently he was at Martin Luther King's church in Atlanta. And they had a big Black Lives Matter sign on the church. Well, what does he do? He goes in and confronts the pastor and the staff. Why do you have this up here? All lives matter. And he went into all of that type of stuff. It was really interesting. And he was talking about how Martin Luther King would roll over in his grave and all of these types of things. By the way, I invited them to church. So I don't know, you're not here today, are you, brother? I, I, don't, I don't see him here, but, but it was just fascinating to hear all of this. And, and when we went back to the truck to get in, I, I was so thankful for him and for his dear wife. But one of the things that, that went through my mind was simply this. Thank you, Father, for rescuing us from the domain of darkness. 
and transferring us to the kingdom of your dear son. And as I was just thinking about that and talking with Nancy, I thought, you know, I think I'll preach on that Sunday. Because it's Thanksgiving, and this is something we have to be thankful for, certainly. So many things to be thankful for. In fact, it is the mark of a mature Christian to be thankful. Do you realize that? All through Scripture we see this. Psalm 30, verse 4, Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 92, 1, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High. Psalm 107, 21, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. Ephesians 5.20, Paul says, Always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And again in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 15, Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And one more, to the church at Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, Paul says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we want to give thanks here today as we do every Sunday, but especially given the season that we're in. Before we look at this amazing passage of Scripture more closely, I would like to give you a brief history lesson about our country. Parents, certainly you can share this with your children. We know that our American heritage is undeniably rooted in the biblical Christian faith of the pilgrims that came, folks like us who were children of the Reformation in the 1500s, and because of their commitment to the five solas that you see uh, around this worship center, because of this uh, and because of their purity of doctrine and their purity of life, um, unbelievers hated them as they hate us today and labeled them with a derisive term. They were called Puritans, Puritans. And these Puritans believed, for example, that the Church of England was, was far too much like the Church of Rome. And so they broke away from that. Mounting persecution uh, caused them to eventually leave England, flee to Holland and other areas where they perceived to find some safety. But uh, especially those in Holland didn't have the economic opportunities that they needed, so they decided to risk everything and to go to a new land called America. Having gained some financial backing and joined by other colonists, they got on board the Mayflower and made their way to Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620. Now, historical revisionists will labor hard to somehow tell our, especially our young people, that our nation was not founded by Bible-believing Christians. And certainly there were a lot that weren't that. A lot of them were just deists, and they, they, that's not a Christian. They weren't truly Christians, but a lot of them were. 
And in the Pilgrim Hall Museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts, there are four Bibles on display, each brought over on the Mayflower, one belonging to the first governor of that group, a man by the name of William Bradford. And the museum display reads as follows. This 1592 Geneva Bible belonged to Pilgrim William Bradford. It journeyed with him from England to Holland and eventually to Plymouth. The Pilgrim Separatist used the Geneva Bible. This was a translation with commentary notes in the margin made by English Calvinist refugees living in Switzerland. The official English church strongly disagreed with the Geneva Bible's commentary. Now, concerning the faith of those that he governed, Bradford wrote, quote, They, as the Lord's free people, joined themselves in the fellowship of the gospel to walk in all his ways made known or to be made known unto them. Now, history reveals that on several occasions, the, the new settlers met with Indian neighbors and had an opportunity to give thanks to Almighty God. And a generation after the first Thanksgiving, on June of 1676, another day of Thanksgiving was commissioned by the Government Council of Charleston, Massachusetts. By unanimous vote, they instructed Edward Rawson, the clerk, to proclaim June 29 as a day of Thanksgiving. And the following is part of that proclamation. Quote, the council has thought meet, you have to excuse the old English here, the council has thought meet to appoint and set apart the 29th day of this instant June as a day of solemn thanksgiving and praise to God for such his goodness and favor, many particulars of which might be instanced. But we doubt not that those who are sensible of God's afflictions have been as diligent to espy him returning to us and that the Lord may behold us as a people offering praise and thereby glorifying him. The council doth commend it to the respective ministers, elders, and people of this jurisdiction solemnly and seriously to keep the same beseeching that being persuaded by the mercies of God, we may all, even this whole people, offer up our bodies and souls as a living and acceptable service unto God by Jesus Christ. You're probably not going to hear that in public schools today. And the following quotation um, comes from an excerpt of the official annals of the Continental Congress. Actually, in, in December, on December 18, 19, or 1777, it, was the, it marked the first time all 13 colonies joined in a, a Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving celebration, and it was actually a commemoration of the patriotic uh, victory over the British at Saratoga. And here's what it reads. Forasmuch as it is the indispensable duty of all men to adore the superintending providence of Almighty God, to acknowledge with gratitude their obligations to him for benefits received, and to implore such further blessings as they stand in need of, and it having pleased him in his abundant mercy to continue to us the innumerable bounties of his common providence. It is therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December, for solemn thanksgiving and praise. 
that with one heart and one voice the good people may express the grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor, and that together with their sincere acknowledgments of kind offerings they may join the penitent confession of their manifold sins, whereby they had forfeited every favor, and their humble and earnest supplication that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance that it may please him graciously. Then it goes on to say to take schools and seminaries of education so necessary for cultivating the principles of true liberty, virtue, and piety under his nurturing hand and to prosper the means of religion for the promotion and enlargement of that kingdom which consisteth in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. A little bit of history. My, how far we have come, right? In the wrong direction. To think, though, that this was part of the, the founding principles and worldview of those that founded this great nation. In fact, you will see these types of concepts woven through the tapestry of the Constitution. And, but sadly, the metastasizing corruption of sin and, and false doctrine and idolatry has now caused God to lift his restraining grace upon this great nation and to abandon her to the consequences of her iniquity. And we see evidence of this in all that's happening in our political climate today. Can you imagine how appalled those early pilgrims would have been, those early founding fathers, if they knew that in this day we would elect officials that champion the murder of unborn, partial-born, and fully-born children that survive a botched abortion. Can you imagine what they would have thought if eventually we would have leaders that would champion the, the gross and insane immoralities of the LGBTQ activist community. That one day the theories of evolution that deny the glory of God and his creation would be taught in our public schools. That neo-Marxist lies of critical race theory that has spawned the racist and domestic terrorist terrorist organization, Black Lives Matter, would now be endorsed by so many people in our country. That we would now have a country that sees that neo-Marxism is, is basically a viable form of, of government, despite the kinds of totalitarianism and extermination of biblical Christianity that, that it has produced in every country where it's ever been implemented. And to think that we would have a country now where officials want open borders that will ultimately transcend national boundaries and laws. Well, certainly, this is what we see today. And yet, the exciting news is despite the moral freefall in our country, we as believers, as citizens of another kingdom, know that our God reigns. And we rejoice in that. Our sovereign God still rules over the affairs of men. And all of history, even Satan's 
temporary rule will give rise to unprecedented events in days to come whereby God will judge the world. And these, and these fundamentals of our faith are actually anchored in the bedrock truths that we find here in our passage before us. So let's look at, let's look at this. As we go to Colossians, we must be reminded of the context. Colossae was a, a thriving city in Phrygia in the Roman province of Asia, which would be modern-day Turkey. It, it was uh, a, a city that had a mixture of, of, of Jews and Gentiles, a mixture of Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism, demonic heresies, that devastated the early church. It was founded by a guy named Epaphras, and these heresies contained various deceptions that were later included in a philosophical system called Gnosticism, where basically God is, is, is good, but matter is evil, so therefore Jesus couldn't have been God because he became material, he, became, he came in the flesh, they say, and so they were saying that Jesus Christ was just a, an emanation descending from God, and, and certainly he was less than God. And with Gnosticism, only certain elite individuals with higher knowledge could understand the great spiritual truths of the universe, knowledge that transcended Scripture. Well, Epaphras was so upset, he traveled from Colossae to Rome where Paul was in prison and asked for help. And so Paul writes this letter, a letter that is, that is filled with great theology refuting the heretics that were infiltrating the church. Great theology concerning uh, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, of reconciliation, of redemption, of, of election, forgiveness, the nature of the church, and so forth. And ultimately, the theme of Colossians is the glory of Christ. And tucked in the middle of his discourse is a call to give thanks to the Father who sent his only begotten Son as a substitutionary sacrifice for all who would believe in him. And all through Scripture, of course, we see that it is God's desire, desire for us to praise him as much as to petition him. Lots of times we end up with more petitions than praise, right? I mean, it's, it's appropriate to, to pray for Aunt Maud's gout and to pray for um, the salvation of our children, all of those types of things. But we need to spend much more time just praising God for all that he has, has done for us. In fact, later on, in Colossians 4, in verse 2, he says, devote, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Now, as we look at the text here in verses 12 through 14, Paul is praying that they, and every believer since that day, will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as verse 10 will tell us. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And part of what that will include is giving thanks to the Father 
for three things, which will be my little outline for you this morning. For number one, our future inheritance. Number two, our past deliverance. And finally, our present redemption. By the way, this is a magnificent pattern that we can apply to our own prayer life, especially when our hearts hearts explode with just doxologies of praise. So first of all, notice the emphasis here on our future inheritance. Beginning in verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, the term qualified is one that means to make sufficient, to authorize. It, it denotes conferring a privilege or an ability to make something fit. And as new creatures in Christ, we know that the old things have passed away, the new things come, and therefore we as believers are, are fitted, if you will, with a new heart, with a new mind, with a new song, By the way, the same kind of attributes that are currently abiding in heaven, though they haven't been fully developed. You might say that like a child who has all of the essential body parts, but must wait until all of those body parts are mature, we too as believers are waiting for full maturity. So we have been qualified. We have been made sufficient. We have been fitted to share in this glorious inheritance. No need, by the way, for the ridiculous notion of the the purifying fires of purgatory. Um, the The Father has qualified us now, you see. Very important. Now, our preferences, our longings as new creatures in Christ, Our passions, our dispositions are all fitted, if you will, for the joys of heaven, not of this earth. Have you ever noticed how, as you grow in Christ, the things of the world are just increasingly repulsive to you? It's like, oh, I don't even want to see that. Oh, I don't even want to hear that. I don't want to be around that. Well, the reason for that is because, again, we've been fitted with a new nature. We've been fitted to exist in a place that is utterly separated from sin. We've been given the mind of Christ and so forth. And, beloved, never forget that we are qualified to inherit the kingdom of God solely because of God's grace alone, through Christ alone, not through any merit of our own. May we never be deceived nor nor poisoned by this idea that somehow we've earned our way. We did not make ourselves fit. That's the point. We did not make ourselves qualified. It was a work of divine grace. We contribute nothing to our salvation. We share none of the glory. Ephesians 2, we read how that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He went on to say that we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's how we used to be. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, we walked in the futility of our mind, being darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us, because of the hardness of our heart. He went on to say that we were callous and 
had given ourselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Oh, child of God, let this sink in. Our redemption is all of grace from the beginning to the end. Were it not for the Father's irresistible compelling, each of us would still be a rotting spiritual corpse awaiting God's wrath. We had no capacity within ourselves to even respond to the gift of the gospel apart from faith through the regenerating work of the Spirit. You see, Christ came to save us, not to help us cooperate with him to save us. A very important truth. I can think of no greater reason to ignite our hearts to eternal praise, and that's Paul's point here. But let's dwell on the idea that the Spirit presents to us here. Again, the Father, it says, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is really intriguing. The, the, the term inheritance carries the idea of, of to have a share in the lot or to have a portion of, of, of an allotment the allotted portion, if you want to put it that way. And and grammatically, the text literally reads, he has qualified us for the portion of the lot, indicating that every believer will be granted his own individual portion of the total inheritance. Now, don't ask me what that's going to look like. I have no idea, but that's what we see here in Scripture and in other passages. And this is certainly a clear illusion that especially the Jewish audience would have understood when they heard it because he's reaching back to the specific specific geographical regions given to the individual tribes of of Israel that, that entered into the promised land and they received their allotment by lot, their inheritance from the Lord. And what's fascinating is to know that Not only has every believer been allotted his own individual portion of the whole inheritance, but the word qualified is in the present tense. Now, why is that important? Oh, it's it's eminently important because what it indicates here is that we currently possess this inheritance right now. We currently have it, though we don't We aren't able to enjoy it fully until our possession is experienced in the eternal state in the new new heavens and the new earth. But no doubt it will include specific privileges, possessions, whereby we can enjoy and serve God in ways that that we can't even comprehend. Paul refers to this again in Colossians 3.24. He says, Know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And likewise, in Ephesians 1.11, because of our Father's great mercy, he says, we have obtained an inheritance, something that we have right now. The writer of Hebrews in 9 verse 15 says, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now think about this. As believers, we currently possess eternal life. We have been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. 
1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Romans 8, 16, we are children of God, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew 19, 29, such a precious text, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters of a father or mother or children or farms for my sake, my name's sake, shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. And then in Second Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then in verse 4, he says he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. The next time you're watching the news and you feel like you want to go shoot yourself, go contemplate these things, dear friends, because this is reality. This is what awaits us. In John 14, 23, Jesus reiterates this concept of how right now we have the, the, the triune Godhead that dwells within us. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that we have been sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Pledge, Erebon in the original language. It's similar to a, a modern Greek word for an engagement ring. That's what we have. We have in the Holy Spirit dwelling within us a guarantee. You might say a down payment, a first installment of our future inheritance. In 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 4 that we studied last week, Peter says we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Indeed, Jesus promised in Matthew 5, 5 that someday we would inherit the earth. And we know that during the millennial kingdom, that long-anticipated messianic kingdom, we will rule with him on a renovated earth that will once again reflect the splendors of Eden as we read in, in Revelation 20 and verse 6. My, what marvelous truths worthy of our praise. But notice another gem of truth in this vein. Verse 12, the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance. And then he says, of the saints in light. Now, this term light can be uh, a synonym for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And the term saints, hagion, um, refers to those who have been separated from sin unto God, separated from the world, set apart unto God, unlike the stark contrast of the ungodly. I was thinking about this this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. Think of the difference here. Do you not know that the unrighteous in other words, the ones that have not been set apart shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. But notice, moreover, that our inheritance is, he says, in light. Now, 
the kingdom of light is contrasted from is a contrast from the kingdom of darkness. We see this throughout Scripture. In fact, light is used in Scripture in a figurative way to denote holiness and purity and truth and wisdom and and spiritual sight and and happiness and life and, and the glory of the presence of God. Whereas darkness, by contrast, describes just the opposite. It refers to that which is unholy, that which is impure, It speaks of that which is deceptive. It speaks of ignorance and blindness and misery and death and the utter absence of the glory of God. In fact, Jesus called hell, quote, outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8 and verse 12. They tell us that If you spend two weeks in total darkness, you will lose your eyesight. And if you spend three weeks in total darkness, you will lose your mind. Now, I don't know for sure how they know that. I don't know who volunteered for that experiment. But we get the idea. And we know that in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, The God of this world, small g, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Indeed, as we look around, friends, we we see people that are are spiritually blind. They're they're, they're morally insane. They're, They're completely mad with sin. They have a maniacal hatred for the God of the Bible, the God of glory. But our inheritance is the total opposite of all of this. I don't have these verses for you for the screen, but in 1 Timothy 6.16, we read that God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John 1.4, Christ is the light of man. John 8.12, Jesus is the light of the world. In fact, the angels of the kingdom of heaven are called, quote, angels of light, 2 Corinthians eleven four. And Jesus called us, catch this, sons of light in Luke 16, 8. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, Paul says, you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Folks, I pray that these staggering truths will grip you, especially during this Thanksgiving season. And may I remind you of a precious promise that's found in Acts 20 and verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, all those who are set apart. In other words, the saints. And there Paul reminds us that when we study the objective facts of Scripture, the word of His grace, something truly remarkable happens. And that's why it's such an emphasis in this church, as it should be in every church. What happens? Well, as we read in that text, he said, it is able to build you up and to give you the the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, it will give you a deeper and a richer understanding of all that God has given you in Christ. 
And you will never understand these things, nor will you be able to enjoy them and express them unless you know them. And for this reason, Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 and verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. But looking forward to our future inheritance, Paul now asks us to look back at, you might say, the horrors from which we have been rescued and thank the Father for, number two, our past deliverance. Notice verse 13. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. Delivered means literally he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And uh, the, the, the word domain really speaks of, 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 a, uh, of the power, uh, the jurisdiction, the authority, the governing principles from which we once operated the sphere in which we once lived, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Transferred is simple. We understand that. It's to move from one place to another. That's what God has done. So in other words, we are no longer helpless victims to the power that once was exerting itself over us, the power of indwelling sin and the empire of satanic darkness. He's now transferred us to his spiritual kingdom. This is defined by Paul in Romans 14, 17 as, quote, the kingdom of God, that of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And beloved, this happened the moment you were born again. What an amazing thought when God breathed life into these spiritual corpses and raised us to walk in newness of life. Hallelujah, we thank you, Father for the mercy that you have brought our way. We thank you for that past deliverance. You know, when I meditated upon the power of darkness here, even this last week, I was just reminded of the depth and the breadth of the wickedness that we see in our country. It's, it's like it's so overwhelming that, it, you know, it's, 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 hard to, it's hard to even think about it. And it's just growing all the time. People by the millions are alienated from God. They're, they're blind to the truth of his word, Satan has blinded them. They're in bondage to his domain of darkness and death. They, they have no faculties to see the light of truth, nor can they see the flames of hell. They think it's all laughably absurd. And we would be the same way were it not for God's grace. Charles Spurgeon described it this way. Moral darkness exercises its awful spell over the mind of the sinner. Where God is unacknowledged, the mind is void of judgment. Where God is unworshipped, the heart of man becomes a ruin. Can't you just hear his voice thundering across that great hall in London back in the 19th century? He went on to say the chambers of that dilapidated heart are haunted by ghostly fears and degraded superstitions. The dark places of that reprobate mind are tenanted by vile lusts and noxious passions like vermin and reptiles from which in open daylight we turn with disgust. And so therefore, dear friends, we can say, oh, Father, thank you for delivering me from all of that. 
No, no longer am I a, a victim of the bondage of sin and of Satan and of death. I have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son. So we give thanks to the Father for our future inheritance and our past deliverance and finally our present redemption. Notice the end of verse 13. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In the original language, it could be translated this way, the son of his love. That's where he's placed us. Think of the biblical progression. We read, for example, in Ephesians 1.4 that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Romans 8.30, and whom he predestined, those, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Speaking in the past tense as though it's already a reality. What an amazing thought. And Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, John 6, 44. And then in John 6, 37, he says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And by God's grace, we are part of that group. And here in Colossians, we understand that the Father has given us the kingdom of the son of his love. And because we are forever united to him in saving faith, we too shall inherit that kingdom. Absolutely astounding. All this points to the father's gift to us, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption. Literally, in whom we have complete release based upon the payment of a price. And that price was the precious blood of Christ. We've been delivered by payment of a ransom. Our English word emancipation captures this idea. It was once used to describe a slave that had been bought. But notice what he does not say. He does not say, in whom we will one day, hopefully, have redemption. Right? It doesn't say that, but rather in whom we have redemption right now. I remember having a conversation with a prominent Arminian brother, a theologian in a local Bible college, who said, quote, There is no such thing as assurance of salvation. None of us will truly know we are saved until the day we die. And I said, Really, brother? And I brought him to several different texts as we talked. And one was in 1 John 5, 13. These things I I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, as I talked with him, I with sincere love and a desire to show him the truth, I, I certainly spit in his soup. You may continue to eat that errant porridge, but it will never taste as good as it once did because these truths are there for him to deal with. And perhaps you as well. Oh, child of God, what a magnificent statement. We have redemption and forgiveness and eternal security as we look at these texts. What manner of voodoo exegesis would cause anyone to miss 
this great promise of eternal salvation right here in this text. I mean, I would submit to you, would Paul exhort us to give thanks to the Father for qualifying us, for delivering us, for transferring us if our redemption and forgiveness of sins remained in question? That makes no sense. No, no, no. We have redemption right now, the forgiveness of sins. It is a present reality. It is not a future possibility. 1 Peter 1, 4, Peter says that we have this inheritance reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Beloved, there is no rejoicing if my salvation is not certain. If it's up to me to somehow stay saved, Arminians will often ask, well, what must I do to make my salvation certain? And I've heard this answer many times. You must hold on to the end. Hold, what? Hold on to the end? How am I supposed to do that? Well, that's not very comforting. I mean, so much for grace. I thought Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Now I'm supposed to hold, what, what's that all about? What does holding on look like? And I must ask, seriously, did something actually happen at the cross? Or was it just a potential atonement? Is it now up to my righteousness to somehow compensate for an inadequate, insufficient atonement? Or did something actually happen at the cross where Jesus could say, it is finished? And beloved, I would submit to you that a great exchange took place at the cross. This magnificent work of saving grace did not take place because we would one day believe It did not take place when we believe or even after we believe. This work was finished at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, at the cross we read God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In other words, Christ's work on the cross did something. It was efficacious. Jesus actually paid the sins for specific individuals, for all those that the Father had given to him in eternity past. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, one died for all, therefore all died. For whom did Christ die? Some would say, well, for the whole world. Wrong. We read here, he died for all who died in him, past tense. In other words, specific individuals who died in the death of Christ, who was their representative and their substitute. Colossians 3.3, Paul says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, when did that happen? At the cross. You see, the atonement was not a potential salvation for all. It was an actual salvation for the many, those whom God had appointed unto salvation. Beloved, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And this saving work was completed at the cross. And therefore, as Paul said in Romans 5, 2, we have a justification that causes us to stand in grace. 
The words of the blind hymnist Fanny Crosby summarizes it so well. I remember singing this as a child. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. How often do you meditate upon these truths? That you were once a slave to sin, a child of disobedience. You served your father, the devil. You were under the just wrath of a holy God, but Jesus paid the price of your redemption at the cross. How often do you drop to your knees and thank the father for his son and praise him for his atoning work? The one who came to give his life as a ransom for many So this is the present reality of the condition of our souls before a holy God. Because of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul said in Romans 3.24, we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, we've been declared righteous because of what Christ has done on the cross. We've been freed, we've been emancipated. We've been redeemed from the slavery of sin. Our sins have been forgiven, and it's all because of his sovereign grace. When he set his love upon us in eternity past, knowing that one day, because of what Christ would do on the cross, he would qualify us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He would deliver us from the domain of darkness, redeem and forgive our sins, and make us fit for the kingdom. An amazing thought, right? Well, may I challenge you in closing, make this text the centerpiece of your thanksgiving with your family. Talk it over. Use this as a a pattern of praise. Look beyond all of the wickedness. The last thing the world needs is a bunch of Eeyore Christians walking around thinking that all is over. No, dear friends, we're child of the king. We're joint heirs with Jesus. Our king reigns and he's coming again. Let the world do and say what it will, but we belong to Christ. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness, placed into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are trophies of God's grace. So let's give thanks to the Father for our future inheritance, our past deliverance, and our present redemption. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. I pray, as always, that your spirit would cause the seeds to find lodging in each of our hearts and, and bear much fruit to the praise of your glory. And if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it is to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and they find themselves wondering if indeed... They belong to Christ. Oh, Father, won't you overwhelm them with conviction that today they might come to Christ in repentant faith, believing in him as the only hope of their salvation, to cry out for the mercy that he will grant so so rich and so free that today will be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth. Lord, we thank you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. 
For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.